So I think the kind of data we're collecting can inform that as well, where a clinician can see over the long term if you're thriving. So you have kids, uh, you know, when the kids are little, you know, they always measure and weigh them. And so when you see this lack of growth, you have a failure to thrive. In adults, we don't have those great measures, but social withdrawal is a very strong predictor of failure to thrive. And yet it's not something most clinicians ask about or measure, but now we can do that. And I could opt to actually share my data from the Tuesday app with my clinician so that he or she can assess whether I'm actually thriving or not. So that's the, the world I want to live in, where we all have this ability and healthcare providers have objective neurologic data to help their patients not only get better, but actually flourish. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose. And today we're going to learn about the science of immersion. And to do this, we are speaking with Dr. Paul Zach from Palm Springs. Welcome, Paul. Thank you so much, Nathan. Excited to spend some time with you. Oh, thank you. I'm really, uh, yeah, likewise, really excited. So you've just recently or last year released a book on immersion uh, and you've developed some technology and apps around imagine this concept of immersion which we'll dive into uh but also very soon and maybe after this uh, before this podcast even comes out um you're about to launch a app around emotional fitness so i want to talk about all the science around this concept of immersion and then discuss some of the research you've done on its potentially predictive uh properties around mood and energy and and happiness so really excited um so first of all but one of the concepts of immersion is uh, storytelling. So perhaps you can tell a bit about your story. What I'm curious on is that from my understanding, you've got a background as an economist and mathematician, but you're now a neuroscientist and you've been all around the world and Silicon Valley and Hollywood and in uh, hunter-gatherer tribes and worked with the Defense Force. Has a, a sort of a, a number cruncher become like a almost a celebrity uh, neuroscientist? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm a Martian, so I don't really understand the humans. So I have to run experiments to try to understand them. And um, yeah, my background's in mathematical biology and economics, PhD in economics, and that postgraduate training in neuroscience. So for some reason, even in graduate school, they let me kind of run wild and um, do a lot of uh, biology and uh, and modeling um, around biological systems for my PhD. Uh, which is good and bad. At the time, in the 90s, uh, people didn't know what to make of that. And I was very privileged to uh, get a job at Claremont Graduate University outside Los Angeles, where they said, hey, if you are helping us understand human behavior, we think you fit in here. Uh, you know, uh, go do it. And so I uh, had a very supportive faculty and um, just kept on going further and further into doing experimental studies, in particular, particularly on um, helping behaviors. So one of the outstanding things about humans that is rather rare in almost all other animals is the extent to which we spend our time and resources to help other people, um, particularly strangers. 
Uh, so you do see this in, in bees and ants who are closely genetically related, but um, uh, outside of very small, uh, generally family-based based groups um, in, in other mammals, we don't see this degree of helping behavior. So that seems like a real mystery to me. Um, and then just to finish up this long explanation for a short question, um, shown I showed in the, in the early 2000s that um, measures of interpersonal trust were among the strongest predictors that economists had ever found to explain why countries, some countries have high living standards and other countries don't seem to grow at all or decline. And so somehow having lots of people that you can interact with in a safe way seem to be um, really important to understand uh, differences in, in living standards and things like poverty. And uh, when around the world giving these talks and the World Bank flies me out last place, so how do we raise trust in these countries? I could tell them about the kind of the legal, social, and uh, informal environments in which trust is high or low. But then someone would ask, well, why do two strangers in a given location ever trust each other when real resources are on the line? And that seemed like a really good question, uh, which led me to um, kind of dumping. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a uh, economics apostate now. I think the whole uh, endeavor is wrong. To start with um, a very simplistic view of human nature, why not start with a rich view of human nature? So mm. I began really digging into the neuroscience of that and then... Um, as I said, I've got additional training and and now I run a big behavioral neuroscience lab uh, at my university. And as you know, I'm starting a couple of different companies to make the discoveries we make in the lab available to the general public. Yeah, amazing. One thing that stri uh, strikes me, uh, you seem to approach it differently or, um, and we'll talk about the beauty I, I feel is almost the simplicity of the technology we'll get to, like what the measures. Um, I'm just curious, do you think your background, because you weren't sort of bogged down by sort of maybe theory to start with, like around biology, so that you, you seem to take more of an empirical view of like measuring and then sort of figuring out what this all means? Uh, I don't know if that's true. I certainly, the, the kind of work that initially kind of made me famous on on this neurochemical oxytocin, um, I didn't know how hard and unlikely it would have been to find uh the brain basis, the brain impact on behavior of oxytocin. So I think the beautiful thing about being young and naive and and haphazardly trained perhaps is that you don't know how hard something's going to be. And so you just kind of dig in. Yeah. And again, I was lucky to, to have a place and people around me who were like, hey, give it a shot. It doesn't work. And you do something else. And so um, I'm a big believer in the, the virtue of failing. Um, I'm trying to fail as much as possible, and that means I'm trying a lot of new things. And right. it just doesn't bother me at all to be wrong. And if I'm wrong, I've learned something, right? So um, I've, I've kind of built a big structure around people who are kind of like me, who are very interested in really pushing hard on the leading edge, which means you're going to make a lot of mistakes. So you are very kind earlier to say, oh, the technology is so easy and so clear. That's because we made a ton of mistakes. <laughs> I mean, get a bunch of cul-de-sacs and had to, you know, Right. Look at our wounds and go, what the heck are we doing? And also, you know, very hard to get funding from organizations. Who the heck are you to do uh, research on the brain? Well, and I tell my graduate students, like, imagine me, I'm a doofus, and I discovered something new about the brain. You smart people are going to be, you know, make so many more advances. So to me, the brain is the final frontier. If, you, if you're a Martian or if you're interested in human behavior and you want to understand the humans, that behavior ultimately comes from the brain. And so you've got to be interested in what the brain's doing. Yeah, absolutely. 
So let's yeah, um, sketch out your yeah development of this um, technology. So again, um, it, some quite unusual origins on how you uh, were able to sort of almost predict uh, human behavior. So was it after the the tragedy, the nine eleven, that you started looking at um, behavior? I did. So we had already done work that um, uh, about 10 days after 9-11, I was asked to come to D.C. to a big meeting, which essentially said, we're the government, we have an infinite amount of money, we're out of time, and we're going to get hit again by some terrorist activities. So anyone who's got a decent way to figure out or forecast um, how to protect uh, the homeland, we're willing to fund you. So I did work for a number of years um, on, on topics around that area. Uh, and then you're kind of in the Rolodex at that point. And so um, as we started working on the trust uh, work, um, we were tasked by the Department of Defense and then eventually some other uh, agencies to see if we could identify uh, combinations of signals in the brain that would accurately and consistently predict what people would do after a message or an experience. So they wanted us to build a neurologic prediction engine. And we had a hypothesis that part of the, essentially how to influence people, right? So part of that influence, part of that persuasion would be driven by these neurochemicals that are released when we have positive social interactions. And so we had some neurochemical hypotheses, which we tested. I've done about 10,000 blood draws in the last 20 years, if you can believe it. And, um, and those neurochemicals tell us where to look in the brain and the peripheral nervous system to find the electrical activity that they induce. And so to kind of be very clear on that, um, after measuring about 140 signals simultaneously in the nervous system, we began to winnow those down into ones that consistently and accurately predicted people's behaviors in, in many different realms. Um, and so uh, for that, there's a, a kind of a difference in the philosophy of science, right? So a typical neuroscience study would be like, I'm say a behavioral neuroscience study. I'm interested in this behavior or this uh, dysfunction in the brain, a uh, disease, Parkinson's, and I want to identify the mechanism in the brain that's inducing this. Um, we took the opposite result, uh, which was, I'll take every signal possible and want to use all those signals to build the most uh, the most predictive model I can. So uh, I think one problem in the traditional neuroscience approach is that the brain works in networks, right? There are circuits that activate. Mm -hmm. And yet many technologies like functional MRI and EEG pick up only parts of that network. Um, and so by picking up what we found was the signals from the brain that are coming out of the neck. So that's this from the cranial nerves, these network effects Then we got very clean network signals as opposed to disaggregated signals in the brain. Um, again, we worked on that level. There's a lot of fMRI and EEG work and in my lab, I still do. Uh, but in terms of predictive accuracy, when we get this output file, if you will, from the brain, and then did some very uh, complex things with these data. So we, I like to say we did unnatural things to natural data <laughs> to maximize our predictive accuracy, um, and then kind of discovered this neurologic state I'm calling immersion, which seems to be the brain's evaluation mechanism for experiences with social content. So that could be how much I value watching a movie, how much uh, I enjoy or getting pleasure from talking to you, Nathan. Um, it could be um, any, anything with social content. So again, if we were not here, I'm by myself and I'm drinking my my drink, no immersion effect, right? There's no social component to that. But us talking um, allows us to then ask a lot of interesting questions about how I communicate effectively, how I can persuade people. 
how I can improve education and training, um, and then ultimately, really, how to sustain emotional fitness. Right? How do I actually develop um, the the kind of uh, kind of key four factors that individuals can control that um, radically improve our health span? Amazing. Um, yeah, let's dive into. We'll, we'll come to the emotional fitness um, in a moment. I'm curious to do a bit of a deep dive because I think our audience love to geek out a bit in the science and the uh, the neurophysiology. So, as I understand, with this immersion, there's two main components: um, uh, attention and this emotional resonance. Can you describe what they are, and then we'll, we can dive into like biologically how how they manifest. Right. So again, for, for listeners, uh, we started with, with blood draw. So we would get you a know, baseline blood draw, expose you to some message. We, we started with public service announcements. So you watch a video about uh, kids with cancer. After you watch it, we do another blood draw. We're measuring a dozen or so uh, neurochemicals looking for changes. And then at the end, because we're torturing you, we'll pay you. And we say, hey, privately, before you leave, if you want to donate some of the money you just earned to a childhood cancer charity, go for it. And so we basically extracted out the brain activity of people who donated versus those who don't, people who emailed their congressperson about the environment versus those who didn't, people who post on social media about something they just read and those who didn't. So we did this over and over and over, and then began to window down these signals. And because I'm in the prediction business and not in the uh, location of the uh, the greatest activity in the brain position, um, we began to find that many of the signals we were collecting were um, highly correlated with each other. And that means I can get rid of some of those signals. So the key signals, as you suggested, first are attention. So attention is a kind of a binary, conscious attention. It's a binary variable. Either I'm attending here or I'm looking at my dog. I can't do both those things. Um, and so attention is associated with the brain's binding of dopamine to the prefrontal cortex. So for listeners who treat or have uh, friends or children with ADD, the drugs for ADD like Adderall and Ritalin increase dopamine binding in the prefrontal cortex. So that's how they increase attention. And then the second is um, uh, oxytocin, which you mentioned earlier, which um, allows us to um, understand and experience the emotional state of others. So it captures that what I call emotional resonance, that kind of emotional interaction that we have when we interact socially. And oxytocin dopamine have a very interesting uh, dance that they do uh, in which one affects the other and vice versa. And so the effects are highly nonlinear. So if I'm just looking at acute change of dopamine or oxytocin in the brain, I'm not getting the full story unless I'm getting this, you know, millisecond frequency, very rich electrical data that this is inducing because of the feedback loops. And so one of the uh, things we do, um, in the lab in the company is apply artificial intelligent techniques that pick up that very intricate dance that allow us to really extract out uh, as much information from this electrical activity in the nervous system. So sorry, that was a very technical answer, but it's such a great question. And uh, as we said off air, uh, before we started, you know, we, we made a lot of mistakes. You know, we measured a lot of things that ended up not being highly predictive until we could, again, take these signals and then, you know, combine them in ways that nature did not intend in order to create a single measure that anyone can understand that's uh, at least locally linear, uh, linear within the range within normal biological range. Right, right. With uh, dopamine, I'm just curious, <laughs> it seems like there's a lot of uh, 
misinformation for want of a better term around dopamine, it's almost cast in a bad light these days and people are doing like dopamine fast and I know it's linked to sort of, you know, addiction and so forth. Is How do you feel? Is that a bit simplistic? And do you feel, yeah, how do you feel about these views? Yeah, dopamine is, is sometimes called the brain's wanting system, right? So it, it motivates um, uh, behaviors. It's uh, an excitatory neurotransmitter. But any new, new thing, you know, if I do this, my dog just jumped, right? That's a dopamine response. It's like, hey, something's going down. Focus, right? That's a kind yeah. of zero one attentional variable. You don't have that. You're just going to die, right? You're, the, you're not going to hear the car coming behind you. You're not going to hear the bear walking behind you. So um, we need that response. But certainly there are dysfunctions uh, in, in that that are associated with uh, addictive and compulsive behaviors. And um, the kind of risk-taking behaviors are associated with often with low levels of dopamine. So people, um, young, young uh, men, which you and I both used to be, um, generally have underactive dopamine systems and motivates a lot of risk-taking behavior, driving too fast, uh, right. drinking drugs kind of things. And, and testosterone actually makes that worse. So again, nothing is happening in isolation in the brain. There are about 200 neurochemicals active yeah. in the brain. Yeah. And they're all trying to kind of seek this balance. So um, yeah, the, it's not like dopamine bad. Um, again, there are dysfunctions, but those are, are, are you know, rare. I mean, you know, drugs like cocaine, methamphetamine radically increase dopamine levels. And so then you get you know, pathological behaviors. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. so dopamine fast. Dopamine fast means you're in a bubble. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Isolated from everything. But even that, if you're in a, I don't know, let's say you're in a, um, uh, what do you used to call those? A, um, the, those, those uh, meditation isolation tanks, you know, with the salt water. And uh, yes, even yeah. that, you hear a noise, that dopamine system's going to kick in. It's, it's deep in the brainstem that, you know, we share this with fish and <laughs> with reptiles. I mean, this is built in. So, um, I, yeah, I, I'll stop there. That's good enough. All right. Yeah. One other um, question I have around your technology, what, what strikes me is that these chemicals are, are they, they're very fleeting. They're very rapid as well. Like dopamine people might think of like, you know, this, it's a prolonged, um, you know, uh, release and activity, but from my sort of understanding of your technology, like things are going up and down and sideways and it's like a second by second soup that's going on. Um, can you just, yeah, I suppose describe the, the, the rapid nature of these neurochemicals and how it affects our behavior. Yes. Yeah, a great question. So, you know, the brain's working on millisecond frequency. So very, very rapidly. And in, in our laboratory, we measure brain activity at that, at that, um, frequency. Um, but again, there's feedbacks. And so once you have this say dopamine activation, then depending on the kind of stimulus that caused that activation, then a, another circuit in the brain will activate that sustains that that behavior. So uh, a, a simple example would be like um, stress responses, right? So initially you have this uh, a, a very rapid adrenaline response within a second or two of a stimulus. If that stressor continues or that arousal needs to continue, then there's a, another neurochemical that uh, with a long name <laughs> that's not irrelevant uh, that kind of sustains that high level of arousal, increased heart rate, respiration, release of glucose. And if that lasts longer than about 10 minutes, then cortisol kicks in, that keeps it going. So there's a bunch of kind of step functions, if you will, right. that allow these systems to activate. And it depends on, on that. So for immersion, this this um, neurologic state that's associated with social behaviors, um, as you know, those data are always kind of a sine wave because it is metabolically costly to be really immersed in an experience. Immersed means I'm I'm spending a lot of energy to process this information because it's emotionally compelling to me. 
So the, the attentional response just opens the door. It's really the emotional response that drives most of that second-by-second second variation that I can get you. To, can I use one bad word, Nathan, or no? <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> okay, so we, we had a subscriber um, called Immersion, the give a shit measure. Yeah. And that's about right, right? The brain wants to save energy because it's so expensive to, to right. run at full speed. So when I see this immersive state, it's like the brain's going, oh, holy crap, this is really important to me. And that importance may be for one second, it may be for four seconds. We do not see people near maximum immersion. The most I've seen is about 40 seconds, and that was really extraordinary. Um, but usually it's a couple of seconds like, wow, this is great. And then the neurons get fatigued, they take a little break, and then I'm immersed again. So I can think of curating experiences so that the most important parts or the call to action or the key training point occur at immersion peaks. But also, I think I have some troughs. I got to give people a little break. So think think of um, a, like long form storytelling, like movies or novels. You know, they'll have a have multiple storylines. The reason for that is because they have one storyline that's just it's total tension all the time. Yeah, it's just exhausting, like a slasher yeah. movie, right? But if I have multiple storylines, I have a um, comic relief. I have a little break. I can modulate the kind of energy I'm asking you to um, invest in this experience. And so we see the same thing with immersion. We see this kind of modulation second by second. Right. Now, uh, oxytocin, yeah, you've done a lot of work in this area. Um, and this is that, so you got the attention, you got this emotional resonance. Um, again, is there other sort of stereotypes around oxytocin though? Um, I think from Robert Sapolsky describes the, that old psychological, uh, conundrum, the trolley, the trolley scenario, you pull the lever and you know, one person dies, as is five, but, um, you give them oxytocin and it, it makes you more, um, favor you in group. Like it, it's not just this sort of free love chemical. It's that I'm just trying to sort of tie it to your emotional resonance. Does mm-hmm. oxytocin, yeah, it makes you connect with things that matter to you. Is that the way I sort of interpret it? Can you describe oxytocin and how it relates to resonance? Yeah. So, uh, behaviorally oxytocin increases empathy. Um, and that empathy could be towards everybody or just towards my in-group, depending on where I am, right? So right. if I'm having, uh, we, we did a show for the BBC some years ago uh, with a rugby team. And we looked at like, what happens when you warm up before a big match? Well, their oxytocin is going up, their testosterone goes up, their cortisol goes up, right? So, and by the way, the easiest blood draws in the world, but these guys have veins like pipes. And my eyes <laughs> draw blood from a bunch of rugby yeah. players. So, so... What's happening in a in a match like that is in group cooperation and out group aggression. So oxytocin is being released in the warm up. We're getting ready. We're getting. In fact, not only was it released in these uh, players, the variants got smaller. They all got very similar in terms of their their oxytocin release uh, versus when they just walked on the field before they started uh, sort of warming up to collaborate with each other. So that warm up is not only physical; it actually is is uh, neuro excuse me, neurological as well, right? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm actually getting in sync neurologically with these individuals. Um, and so that's what oxytocin does is it helps us not only, um, uh, well, our brains only help us cognitively understand why you're doing what you're doing. The oxytocin gives me a sense of why you care about this. What's the emotional commitment you have to what you're doing? And that makes me a much better uh, collaborator for you, whether I'm on a team, a sports team, a uh, a work team or a family member, right? If I don't have a sense of what my wife's doing and why it's important to her, I can understand her cognitively. Oh, yep. she is, um, you know, 
putting on a new dress. Okay, why is that important to her? Oh, because we're going to dinner and we're going with people that she likes and she doesn't want to look sloppy, right? I, I have to have that emotional component to it or else I'm just like, well, that's a new dress and that's not very helpful and that sounds almost aggressive. Although, oh man, you're going to look so great when we meet our friends for dinner. Now that's emotional, right? So you can see how it helps us navigate the world. And then mm -hmm. lastly, Nathan, when we look at uh, the human neuroanatomy compared to all other mammals, we have many more receptors for oxytocin than do other mammals. So we're exquisitely sensitive to social information. And because of that, we, we can live in big cities. We can live in communities. We can get on an airplane and get shaken up for five hours and not <laughs> kill each other. Right? It's an amazing kind of thing on how much humans cooperate, even with strangers all the time. So it's very natural for us to form groups just really rapidly, even, even as we get older, right? So I'm 61 and I've recently made a bunch of new friends and it's just because I'm hanging out somewhere and like, it's kind of weird, right? That you're in your 60s, you're like, man, I made some great new friends. We have yeah. all the time now. Why do I need new friends? I don't know. They're cool. I like them. We do cool <laughs> stuff together. And so, you know, uh, it never ends. In fact, we, we published research recently showing that oxytocin release um, actually has a positive age gradient. So as people get older, they're generally better able to emotionally regulate people who are psychologically and neurologically healthy. And so they're less concerned about those frustrations and the little slights that we, we all face when we're younger. Um, and we showed that not only do they release more oxytocin for a given stimulus, um, that oxytocin release was positively associated with their history of helping behaviors. So the more people volunteered, the more they donated to charity, the more they helped others, the more they appeared to train their brains to be better connectors, to be more emotionally open for their friends and family. And so all these brain systems are adaptive. So if we start to train ourselves to be better social creatures, better parents, better spouses, better friends, better colleagues at work, then we're actually um, helping our brain develop the ability to sustain those important relationships through our whole lives. And by the way, oxytocin uh, is also calming, and so it improves our immune responses. So this is you know, reaching out to a friend for support when you're having a bad time. Um, right. So that, that is a kind of a, a balm, you know, it helps you kind of get through this. Like I'm going to call my friend and I'm having a bit of a crisis and that person's going to help me. And so, yeah, so people who, I mean, by some evidence, uh, I would say not conclusive yet, but people who have uh, richer social relationships, those who release more oxytocin, um, live longer and live healthier. So gosh, we all want that, I think. Absolutely. So you've developed some technology that can give us a proxy um, on measuring uh, both attention and emotional resonance, um, particularly oxytocin. I, I saw some of your early work where you've had like wires and tubes and things sticking out of all your participants. But yeah. um, <laughs> um, but now with uh, technology and the wearables and apps and so forth, you've managed to um, be able to capture this um, non-invasively through these um, devices. So yeah, I've got a lot of questions on this. Um, firstly, obviously this is a brain activity, but it's affecting the peripheral nervous system and, and there's like signals that you can put your stethoscope to and, and, and read. Can you describe the um, what are the proxies for both attention and um, emotional resonance? Right. So uh, attentional responses, again, in the prefrontal cortex are excitatory. So they increase heart rate, they increase skin conductance. 
So I can measure at the level of the brain, I can measure in the peripheral nervous system. Um, oxytocin binds to the vagus nerve in the heart. And so I can infer oxytocin's activity from measuring, for example, uh, cardiac responses. And so this emergent state is really having these sort of third and fourth order, very subtle changes on the rhythms of the heart. So yeah, the real magic, as it seems now, is we can take a wearable like a smartwatch or fitness sensor, feed in uh, using a standard uh, you know, heart rate sensor, PPG sensor, and infer this uh, neural activity. Because the brain is embodied, um, these cranial nerves are passing through the heart. And so we basically worked backwards doing a mapping from cardiac activity into what the brain was doing. And we do that mapping by using pharmaceuticals. So I can use, uh, for example, synthetic oxytocin to trace out these pathways in the brain mm. and show causally that what I see from the technology or the algorithms applying to the wearable actually correspond to direct activity uh, in the brain, uh, you know, using big machines uh, in the lab. And so, yeah, it took a lot of time. And again, we made a lot of mistakes. So um, yeah, don't think yeah, I knew what the yeah. hell I was doing for the last 20 years. I'm slow, Nate. And you know me, I'm working really slow. <laughs> Um, I, I think the people I've um, showed it to that they, they say, oh, is it so is it heart rate variability? And, and my um, initial response is sort of that, but on steroids and <laughs> much more complicated. How is it different to heart rate variability? Yeah, um, it's different because we're pulling from the cradle nerve. So I'm not measuring heart rate variability or heart rate. I'm feeding in heart rate, but then we dump it and we apply the Zyrum. So it's really these very subtle um, acceleration, deceleration of the heart. Uh, so uh, dopamine is excitatory, oxytocin is inhibitory. And so it's uh, this kind of balance between the two branches of the of the nervous system, parasympathetic and sympathetic, that kind of maintain us. And so when we see this kind of acceleration and immersion, uh, it tells us that, um, that you're getting both this dopamine and oxytocin response at the same time, which is super weird. So they're not exactly contemporary. They're doing this kind of, I call it a dance between them. Ah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it seems like, well, why not just measure heart rate or heart rate variability? If those predicted, I wouldn't need 20 years to figure this out or, or 15 years. We've been, we've had this offer five, for five years, but um, yep. yeah. So again, the, the goal here was just to maximize predictive accuracy across lots of different domains. And to do that, we had to really, um, you know, apply a bunch of mathematical transformations to these cranial nerve data in order to capture what the brain's doing. And, and the brain is embodied, right? So uh, what I see in the peripheral nervous system ultimately is coming from our directed by the brain. Um, so yeah, it just, just took a long time. So is that's a, I think that was a poor explanation. So no, no, ultimately, perfect. we searched and searched and searched until we could find combinations of these signals that, that would predict what people would do. And as you know, now we're in the 90% predictive accuracy range very consistently um, across you know, multiple domains. Yeah, it's uh, mind-blowing. So um, predicting which movies will um, you know, be blockbusters, which songs on Spotify will, will um, yeah, go viral, and uh, which ads on the Super Bowl hit and or miss. Um, and you can even predict who The Bachelor was going to potentially hook up with, I think. So um, you've done amazing work all through there. Um, um, and that's all in your book, which is a really good read. Now, I want to just, you've started to move into sort of like emotional fitness. So yeah, how did, how did that transition occur? Like, so immersion's great for sort of like um, predicting behaviors around consumption and so forth, but where's the, how'd you establish the link between um, health and well-being and emotional fitness? Yeah. So in my academic lab, I run 
usually eight to 10 year research programs and run several at a time. And um, almost all the work I've done in the last 20 years ultimately is about happiness and about how to, how to increase life satisfaction. Ah. Um, so of those four kind of primary factors that people can control to improve their health and happiness, sleep, diet, exercise, and rich social connections. So the first three are pretty easy to measure. Um, the fourth is really difficult. And again, because of this work at oxytocin, we knew that, as I said earlier, people who release more oxytocin um, have stronger social relationships. And those individuals are happier, they're healthier, they have more friends. Um, so, uh, um, you know, if we can lean into that, then it tells us about how to really develop the kind of a rich social life that it gives us um, uh, happier and healthier uh, lifespans. So, okay, great. So how do we do that? Um, we had some years ago uh, an immersion uh, subscriber who said, hey, we want to help keep older people um, happy and healthy. And so um, older individuals are more at risk of depression, but less likely to report the symptoms. So right. there's a real care gap there. Said, so could your technology measure, uh, you know, sort of predict depressive symptoms? And when you're a startup, you know, the answer always is, yeah, probably. Please give us money. So, um, so we ran a number of studies uh, with this company where we measured at one second frequency, eight to ten hours a day for multiple days, um, people's neurologic states um, using a, a couple metrics on the side. We haven't talked about some other ones, but that's okay. Uh, immersion is the key one. And we're able to show and have now published, as you know, um, research showing that we can predict with 98% accuracy two days in advance, whether you're happy or sad, whether you have high energy or low energy, um, using these data and applying uh, machine learning algorithms to them. So the data seem to be very rich. Again, that's why I'm, I'm kind of concluding over this 20 years that immersion appears to be this social valuation mechanism. So um, when those individuals did not get a lot of immersion, they socially withdrew and they were not happy about it, right? So we need other humans uh, around us to be happy. Not always. We need a break sometimes. I don't want to see everybody all the time. But in general, I think that's the case. And um, and now we have people in a lot of high, high uh, stress, um, uh, employees in high stress industries using our technology to help alert them to um, their emotional states. Because again, these signals are coming deep in the brainstem outside of our conscious awareness. Yeah, yeah. So we can kind of guess, am I happy or sad? But but to be able to quantify that and to do it granularly so I really know through the course of my day how I'm doing, um, that allows individuals, we believe, to begin to emotionally regulate. So um, I'll, I'll uh, leak the big news. So uh, next week, that's the week of uh, uh, June 1, uh, we are going to release a free emotional fitness app called Tuesday. Uh, the name is a uh, play. I'll tell you about in a second, a little play on words. Um, that allows anybody to have goals for positive social interactions. So if, if we're training ourselves to be uh, emotionally connected to others, to build these relationships that are so valuable to our health span, how do I know how well I'm doing unless I'm measuring this? If I'm measuring it neurologically, then I really have goals. So there's a bunch of other stuff in there. You'll link this to your calendar so you can go look and see what parts of the day am I getting a lot of positive energy? And we have this other measure called psychological safety. What part of the days are the people driving me nuts, right? And so again, that kind of um, data can let you emotionally regulate. 
businesses can see then how they are creating emotionally safe or not safe workplaces. Uh, very important in your part of the world these days. Uh, I think everywhere, right? I think we should keep everybody emotionally safe if we can, wow. so they can perform at their best. So anyway, that's where we've gone. And and that was always really on the roadmap. It was just nice that we had this uh, great partner who accelerated our, our release of this. And, um, you know, mental health, if we look at, you know, the medical disorders in the world, um, you know, we've solved so many problems from the stuff that was, you know, killing people a hundred years ago through medical advances and public health advances. I mean, what's, what's killing us now? Cancer, heart disease, that's lifestyle and just living longer, right? So again, I think we still need to make progress on those, but it's the mental health disorders that are just exploding. And I don't think I understand fully why the, that's happening. I have a couple of guesses, but I think the first step is to actually have a way to measure my mental health that doesn't require me going to see a psychiatrist and getting a diagnosis. Yeah. Wow. Um, so many questions. Let me, <laughs> I didn't, I was too immersed. I couldn't write down my notes. Um, I'll pick up on a couple of threads. Firstly, you mentioned that, um, which ties back to your original immersion where our subjective liking or our, maybe is it in our subjective feelings don't always accurately correlate with what we're going to do. Um, that, hence why this whole immersion, um, uh, can predict, um, action. So this immersion could, um, measure how engaged you are, even though you may not subjectively be able to articulate that or identify that. Or I was just thinking now with the Tuesday, like if you're at work and you reflect back and then, oh, when I was doing that task, I, was, I must've been in a real flow state and that's enriching for me, huh? I, you know, maybe that's something more I can do or I didn't realize that. So yeah, can you describe that how this almost looked, as I understand, looking at our unconscious brain and which I, I think prim primarily drives us a lot of the time. Can you um, discuss? Sure. I, I just actually um, this week gave a talk at an Association for Talent Development International meeting in uh, in San Diego about this. And and so I think of immersion as uh, kind of a neurologic correlate of flow, right? And so what's nice about immersion is it's objective. I don't have to get a self-report. It's continuous. It's granular. Um, and so, yeah, these flow states are so so enjoyable. Uh, you know, we lose track of time. We feel like we're doing our best work. Um, and so being able to capture when those happen, uh, gives us, lets us lean in and do more of that, right? Give me more of that thing. So I think it's, it's really important to capture this. And because we, we poorly report these states and certainly poorly report them second by second, then I think we do need some technology to do it. And, you know, uh, with the increase in, in wearable technologies and all this is cloud computing. So this is, you know, everything's happening in the cloud very rapidly because, you know, neuroscience is all about signal extraction, right? Most of what you and I, you and my brains are doing now, you're keeping it upright, breathing and conscious. And in your brain, you know, very little respond to my voice, the information in my voice. So I have to extract all that out from the background noise. Um, so to be able to do that, I think is, is spectacular. So here's my data right now. I'm going to see it. So that smile means I'm getting a little more value from this experience than I am at baseline. And the background is my psychological safety. I'm at fall, so I'm a little bit stressed. I'm talking to you. I'm on camera, right? Um, yeah, and yeah. that background were summer, then I would be totally relaxed. And if it's winter, uh -huh. I'm kind of stressed out. So it gives people a real uh, ability to see, hey, I just did something. And I can go back and look at my data from the last half hour or hour or day and figure out where I am. Um, 
So again, that technology has existed in the lab for, I don't know, 40 years at least. Right. But right. to have it in everybody's hands, I think, hopefully can really improve our the quality of our lives. That's that's the hope. And it's free. So yeah, right away. So wow, oh, that's incredible. Um, so you you need some sort of device like a Apple Watch, um, mm-hmm. those Fitbit sensors and so forth, and it just pairs up and just constantly monitors and tracks. And uh, yeah, you just show up the app where obviously it's audio, but it's a uh, had a, like a smiley face and had a, a seasonal background, and so that right. tells you how immersed you are in the moment. Um, wow, that's amazing. Um, safety, we haven't touched upon that. So in the immersion app, and then this one, I presume, um, is this concept of safety, which is obviously a, a separate uh, measure to immersion. So can you describe safety and what that's reflecting and why that's important? Right. So the humans can give us energy, make us excited, give us all this value, or they can cause friction. They can, I don't know, be mean or yell at us. And so we developed this measure called psychological safety. I think the only physiologic measure of that that we derive from the from the vagus nerve um, that captures um, whether we're comfortable around these other humans. So psychological safety and immersion are um, positively correlated, but the correlation is low. They're measuring different things. So by having those two measures, we kind of span the space of social interactions. How valuable is it to me? And are they driving me nuts kind of thing? So th- there are times when I have high immersion. Let me see where I'm at now. I'm still kind of where I was. I can have high yeah. immersion, but be stressed. And so right. um, I think one of the misnomers in the uh, kind of quantified self um, mental wellness app world is that stress is bad. Stress is not yeah. bad, full stop. Right. If I don't have stress, I, you know, I just sit in my room with the lights off and do nothing. That's not good for anybody or I don't know, play video games all day or something. Right. So we want moderate levels of stress so that dopamine oxytocin dance I talked about is highly nonlinear. So if I have this kind of arousal state dopamine and I've got a, a reason to do stuff, that's actually stressful, physiologically stressful. Stress is the right word. Let's say arousing. It's physiologically arousing. My heart rate's up. My cognition's up. I'm spending metabolic energy. Now, if that experience involves other people, now I have this immersion state. I'm releasing uh, oxytocin as well. And so without some reason to you know get out of bed and do something, no immersion. Now, too much stress inhibits immersion. So that inverted view is being captured by those two dimensions that were uh, in there. So just as a concrete example, Nathan, sorry, I'm really talking at 30,000 feet. Let me get down to the ground. We had a subscriber at an elite uh, private uh, college in the Northeast U.S. who was measuring immersion during uh, uh, different classes, sort of college classes. And they found that uh, freshmen, you know, first year uh, microeconomics, so kind of maybe first technical course a lot of kids will take in college, um, that psychological safety um, averaged for the A classes before the midterm um, strongly predicted uh, students' midterm grades and the size effects were large. So, uh, I think a 10% increase in psychological safety increased their grade by one full letter, like from a B to an A. Oh. There was no effective immersion. Well, that's interesting. Immersion correlates with information recall. Why wasn't immersion uh, correlated? Well, I think of psychological safety as how much bandwidth you have to be immersed. So, if I'm relaxed, if I feel comfortable, I can really expend that metabolic energy because I'm not spending energy thinking about how tired I am or how hungry I am or how mad I am because my girlfriend broke up with me or whatever. Um, and so I can really focus on that class. Why no immersion difference? I think because 
you know, how interesting can you really make economics 101, <laughs> to be honest? I just don't think it's, you can, it's not yeah, that exciting. Yeah. I just think for this instructor, at least, um, you know, that wasn't the, the strongest predictor. But again, I think it depends on the environment, but one or one or two right. or both of those may be strongest predictors. Yeah. So yeah, I think yeah. this is kind of readiness to, to have an experience, readiness to learn, readiness to engage with them. Right. Uh, okay. Brilliant. Um, so you mentioned the, we're after that U stress, which, um, takes me back to your recent study in the, um, nursing home residents. So you, um, measured their immersion for about 20 days. And as you said, um, amazingly a drop, it was a drop in immersion and safety two days prior predicted the onset of both low energy and low mood. So, yeah, my question is that like, there's often this you know, um, view about we've got to reduce stress and remove negative thoughts, which is probably important. But is it also the opposite, like almost that sort of positive psychology? If we have enough immersive moments now, our day, we become more emotionally resilient and um, fitter in a, in a sense. So, yeah, can you describe just again the study because it was peak and peak immersion, like if you had really high moments in your, in your day and just overall average immersion for the day was correlated with better mood and energy. Right. So not just average immersion uh, predicted, but peak immersion, like how many of those social experiences were really valuable to my brain. So peak immersion was a stronger predictor than average immersion uh, because the brain brain returns to baseline average was statistically related to uh, outcomes. Um, so uh, yeah, we really need extraordinary experiences. I think the, the immersion data from my lab and others suggest that those peak immersion experiences kind of stretch our brains help us to be more fully present, to be more emotionally open, and to really build our ability to form those rich social relationships. So I think that's what we're seeing. Um, again, certainly it's got to be replicated in, in different populations and different samples. Um, but uh, the animal research is pretty clear on this. So this is an ability to do that animal work at scale in humans without having to you know tie them down to some machine. As you said, in the olden days, all these wires coming out of people and a bunch of crazy stuff. So I'm very excited. I think you know the the opportunities in the in the digital health future to really help people live happy and fulfilled lives are just exploding now. So we're thrilled to be part of that revolution. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait to to see this in action. Um, so yeah, you've been using this technology in other populations. You mentioned off air that you haven't got all the data that hasn't been shared but any other insights that you've got i think if you work with like um emergency service workers and so forth other sort of occupations we have first responders uh content moderators uh a number of professions that face high levels of, of stress and burnout um and i think the key there is going to be um alerting individuals to use resiliency resources before they have a crisis and so that's the kind of models we're building now so this is all pretty new. So I, I don't want to share any uh, data that's solid and you know publishable or, or already published. But um, I think that's going to be very important that uh, not only do we see our emotional states, but when we need it or before a crisis, but when we're heading towards one, we're able to alert people to use the resources around them. And that might be as simple as phone a friend. Um, it might be phone a therapist. It might be suicide prevention hot, hotline, God forbid. But having a library of possible resources that we can um, alert people to at least look at, um, I think it's going to be really important. I would love that. Yeah. And imagine, you know, if you have an elderly parent or a, or a child at college, you know, knowing about their emotional state 
would be amazing. My father's 91 years old and you know, long retired and you call him up. Hey, 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 dad, how you doing? Good. What'd you do today? Nothing. You feeling okay? Yes. I'm like, you can't get any information out of it. But <laughs> yeah, if yeah. I, you know, if he opted in to share uh, his data with me, I would feel so much more comfortable to know, oh, look, he's he's having a nice day. Uh, a neighbor yeah. mentioned to him or, uh, you know, I don't, he watched a nice movie or whatever. Just so I know that he's feeling comfortable um, would, would be wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I'm also thinking of the, almost the other part of the spectrum of the age bracket, like the, the teenagers that give you one-syllable answers and um you know that they, they don't confide obviously understandably with their dorky parents and so forth about how they're feeling but it could actually and particularly now with them yeah teen sort of mental health issues and so forth that it might be yeah powerful way to sort of yeah flag any sort of um low low immersion states at least do a check-in right again I, yeah you know there's there's error in these data they're not 100 percent predictive but you know call hey honey just want to see how you're doing you know, it's, it's wonderful. It's like when you get old enough, Nathan, if you're, you're, I'm older than you, but you know, I have friends I've had for, you know, 30 years, like my male friends, I call like, I love you, man. I'm like, I love you too. Like, you feel so good. Like I have, you know, I don't know, eight or nine friends who would pretty much do anything for me. I think, man, I yeah. am a lucky person. Like I have people yeah. who outside my family who really care about me and will, and you know, and we all have crises. I've had crises once in a while. I got to call up a friend and go, Matt, I need help and I need it now. Like, all right, come over. What do you need? Let's do it. Like, that's yeah. an amazing thing. So to help people build those relationships, to measure that you're getting better and better so that the new app Tuesday has a ring for you to close, just like with steps, so you can yeah. build up your emotional fitness. It's super right. easy. Yeah. And so yeah. that's based on these 50,000 brain observations, plus we've got on the Immersion website. So we have a very good sense of what at least the general population needs to be emotionally fit. And of course, these apps will learn about you using artificial intelligence, and you'll have a customized goal, um, wow. just, like, just like steps. Wow. So yeah, let's describe Tuesday a bit more. Um, you didn't mention you said there was a, a plan words or something. First of all, Tuesday was what's the name? Yeah. So our uh, CEO of our company, Immersion, uh, just on our daily huddle, will often say, no matter what day of the week it is. This is going to be the best Tuesday ever. And so we always a tease about that. I don't know where it just came out. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, Monday's made up your best day ever, but let's make Tuesday great and maybe Wednesday great and Thursday. So it's a little, a little yeah. uh, kind of fun title. But then when you hear the story, you go, oh, okay, well, <laughs> these people are having fun. But I do yeah. want to have the best Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday ever, right? Um, and so how do I know if I'm doing that? I make a kind of guess. I have a sort of an intuitive sense. Um, but also it's a function of the people around me, right? Am I sufficiently investing in relationships? Um, so you don't know this, Nathan, but I'm a huge introvert. I can spend 12 hours in my lab not talking to anybody and be totally happy. But as I started doing this work years ago, I realized, well, that's actually not healthy for me. It's not emotionally healthy and that emotional state affects my physical state. So I began investing in relationships. When I turned 50 uh, 10 years ago, um, I had four surprise birthday parties, not because I'm such a wonderful person, but because I had invested in so many relationships. I put yeah. time in, right? I wasn't working. I wasn't uh, exercising. I put time in with others to be of service to them, to build that relationship. And that's what we're really capturing with Tuesday. Wow. So yeah, from a practical perspective, you've got this um, app. It gives you a, a, a continuous sort of score. Then you can also, 
gives you a summary or reflect back. How do you sort of attribute, as you said, to to the day? What other features does it offer? Yeah, it'll link to your calendar. So you can actually just see if you use an online calendar, it'll actually show you what your immersion and psychological safety were every hour of the day that you're using it. Um, and then give you suggestions on how to uh, improve your emotional fitness. It's really building up that that strength. So um, I think wellness is too narrow of a notion. Let's build up our emotional fitness by having that dear friend you can call up, that person who tells you they love them, um, that that child who runs into your office and gives you a hug, right? All that's really important for human beings. And yet somehow, I, I think particularly in the US, but I think Australia also has this very independent streak among our people. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't need people. I'm good on my own. I'm an independent human. Um, I, you know, actually we are embedded in community. We need community. And to the extent that we embrace um, those people around us and form tight communities around ourselves, we're going to be happier, healthier, and live longer. So, you know, that's the, that's the method. I remember it was just as an aside, uh, giving a, uh, uh, called a grand rounds, a uh, 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 seminar to, to medical doctors uh, some years ago in San Antonio. And one of the docs there was a very well-known gerontologist and, uh, and he was older than me. And I said, so what's the secret? And he said, what secret? I said, you've been studying old people for 50 years. Why do people live longer and healthier? And he goes, oh, no, no, we don't look at that stuff. You know, we look at heart disease and arteriosclerosis and cancer. I'm like, you never asked the most basic question? How the heck do people live over 100? How do you, how at 100 years old are you still ambulatory and active and talking to people? Like that to me is the ultimate question. Yeah, avoiding cancer, sure, we all want to do that. But I actually yeah. want to live super happy and engaged. And it's not avoiding stress. It's actually leaning into the things that give me energy that turn me on. And those are almost always things with other people. Yeah. I'll sit. All right. Just before we wrap up from a, a, like a clinician's perspective with this um, concept of immersion, a couple of things are, I want to ask, obviously the more immersive um, an experience is, the more the audience or the, um, the person remembers and recalls it and the more they're likely to take action. So as a, a healthcare provider, obviously, you, you know, you're doing all your diagnostics and prescriptions, blah, 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 but what about, what's some things to be mindful of in like the, the interaction, the communication, how do you make, you know, a conversation or a consultation immersive so that they walk away that key message? Yeah. As you mentioned, uh, or maybe it was off air, you know, um, the most effective way to sustain immersion is through storytelling. So a human skill story with characters I can understand with authentic emotions. And so it's really, I think, um, understanding that to communicate even technical information like a clinician uh, often does, if I wrap this in a story, it's going to be more easily understood and absorbed and remembered. And so that could be, hey, Nathan, I had a patient just like you recently. It's a guy about the same age and he, and for whatever reason you're in to see me and you know, here's what we did with him. So he didn't want to take these meds because of the side effects. I understand that. And so what we did was we used a combination of blah, 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 blah. And three weeks later he was doing great. And that's what I expect you to do as well. So let me tell you, you know, ask me some questions. So you understand exactly what your treatment protocol is. Um, this, I think also there's a big role here for AI where it's some interesting emerging, emerging data that mm -hmm. people are more comfortable asking a, an AI uh, kind of clinical bot questions, quote, dumb questions, which are there no dumb questions um, about, you know, their healthcare than they are a, a physician who may seem 
stressed or worried or um, I don't know, too busy to talk to you or or maybe we'll think you're dumb or whatever. Um, I think none of which is necessarily true. If, if you have questions, you should ask your healthcare provider those questions. Um, so I think the kind of data we're collecting can inform that as well, where a clinician can see over the long term if you're thriving. So you have kids, uh, you know, when the kids are little, you know, they always measure and weigh them. And so when you see this lack of growth, you have a failure to thrive. In adults, we don't have those great measures, but social withdrawal is a very strong predictor of failure to thrive. And yet it's not something most clinicians ask about or measure, but now we can do that. And I could opt to actually share my data from the Tuesday app with my clinician so that he or she can assess whether I'm actually thriving or not. So that's the, the world I want to live in where we all have this ability and healthcare providers have objective neurologic data to help their patients not only get better, but actually flourish. Wow. Well, that's amazing. I, I can't wait to, to utilize this app and um, spread the word. So we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much. Um, couple things that the book immersion great read it's audible as well so you can yeah um yeah it's covers all areas it's a yeah it's it's brilliant um and i'll put the links to the the app which will be out by the time this is published um any other ways we can follow you or other bits of information sure uh lots of ways i'm happy to interact uh anyone who's listening to you uh is going to be interesting to me so uh get immersion.com you can find me there can you send me an email and uh, happy to engage with folks who have questions. And um, I, I love what you guys are doing too at Metagenics. I mean, I think it's all about helping people, um, you know, really flourish and thrive. And if we're not doing that, then I think we're failing. Also, by the way, when people flourish in the broad sense, they don't spend as much time in the healthcare system. We save resources, all the people are happier, but all society is better, right? So um, anyway, love the stuff you do. And thank you so much for having me on. Uh, absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you, Paul. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.